Well, good morning to those of you who remain, and they're always looking for more volunteers. If you're sort of wishing that you got to leave the sanctuary at this moment, talk to Beth Soley. They're always looking for more volunteers to worship with the children, and it is worship. Nonetheless, I'm glad you're here, and it's my pleasure to greet you. I greet you in the name and the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus, who brings us each one, long-time members, first-time visitors, and everyone in between. He's the one who gathers us. Let us know that you're here by filling out the friendship pad. It's a black pad on the end of your pew. You can write your name and contact information and anything else you think the church office might need to know. Let me say a welcome also to those of you who are watching and worshiping at home. This morning we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. It'll be our final week before we take a break for Advent. Let, re- let me remind you where we are in the story. Jesus and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. And Jesus has twice now told his followers about his death, but they keep imagining their own glory. And so Jesus seeks to impress upon them what it will mean to follow him in this way, on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross. I'll begin reading with uh, chapter 10, verse 17. It's on page 1013 in your pew Bibles. Let's listen again to the word of the Lord. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before Jesus. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy, he declared. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, 
With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A boarding pass for a flight from Dubai to Minsk. A prescription written in Arabic. A pair of shoes. This week I've been reading in the news about the migrant crisis on the border of Belarus and Poland. I imagine some of you have seen this in the news too. Thousands who bought a one-way ticket from home, home in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, now find themselves stuck between nations in the middle of a geopolitical conflict They have left everything to live on the run, and they're littering the border with their few remaining possessions, a shoe, a prescription, a boarding pass. These things have stuck in my imagination as I've tried to imagine, as our text this morning asks us, what would it be like Why would someone leave everything they have and set out? Jesus and his disciples, once again, are on the road to Jerusalem, and they're stopped by this earnest young man seeking counsel. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. Jesus responds, Why do you call me good? Hmm. This is not what I expect Jesus to say. What I want Jesus to say is, why are you focused on what you can do? You can't do anything. You're saved by grace, not works. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? Not not yet. Jesus corrects the man, but not his question. He corrects his address. He's focused on what I'm not. Jesus tells him no one is good except God. Jesus counters before referring him to the law. Whatever the man meant by calling him good, whether this was the man's slip of the tongue or he was making some nascent statement of faith in Jesus as more than a rabbi, this exchange about Jesus being good cracks open the question, who is Jesus really? And what is his relationship to God? After a back and forth about the Ten Commandments, Mark then tells us something unusual. Jesus looked at the man 
and he loved him. Jesus looks at the man and sees him as he is. In his earnestness, in his lack of understanding, in his material circumstances. And Jesus doesn't question his motives, scoff at his ignorance, resent the man's social position. Jesus loves him. And it is because he loves him that he gives him these instructions. Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, come and follow me. This is the first and only time Jesus directly tells someone to sell all their possessions. But it's not the first time we have seen Jesus call someone to follow him. And we have seen that this is a costly invitation. Jesus found Simon and Andrew while they were out fishing and said, come and follow me. And what did they do? They left their nets, the source of their livelihood as fishermen. Jesus found James and John while they were out on the lake with their father and said, come and follow me. And what did they do? They left their dad in the boat and with him the family business. This time, it's the young man who finds Jesus. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And this time, he really spells out the cost. But instead of jumping up and following, the man goes away sad. Because, and here's the punchline, the story has been leading up to this. Mark hasn't revealed until now The man goes away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus lets him go. It's tempting to read this as a story of Jesus' pastoral insight into one man's particular weakness. Many interpreters do so. But the problem with that is what comes next. From this particular encounter, Jesus makes a generalization, a statement that does not fail to amaze even his closest friends. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. If you've been reading Mark along with us, then you have heard us say before that there was a strand of thinking in the Judaism of Jesus' day that identified wealth as a sign of God's blessing. Though the Old Testament has a variety of things to say on wealth, in common practice, those who had money not only had worldly power, but also religious standing. They must be doing something right in the eyes of God and so deserve the respect of God's people. Those who have been walking with Jesus, eating, sleeping, and breathing at his side for years cannot comprehend this pronouncement, which contravenes the best religious and worldly wisdom. And so Jesus strengthens his statement. It is easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I will admit that it has been a while since I've seen a camel. 
think the last time I saw one, I was at a zoo and I paid a few dollars to take a short ride with one of my children. But I do not need to examine a camel up close to say with confidence that a camel cannot fit through a needle's eye. In the ninth century, a scribe came up with this idea that perhaps Jesus was referring to some particular gate in the wall of Jerusalem, one that a camel could squeeze through, but only by unloading and getting down on its knees. As far as I know, there's no such gate. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is not like our favorite Winnie the Pooh story, where Pooh eats too much honey and gets stuck in rabbit's hole, and he can only get out if he gives up his honey for a while and slims down. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is not like me and my condition sucking in so that I can fit through a tight place. For a camel to slip through the eye of the needle is, as Jesus makes clear in his next statement, not just difficult or unlikely, it is impossible. But for God, even those who seem like the best candidates for the kingdom, the rich and righteous, still have no hope apart from the action of God. And God is doing something, something amazing, in this itinerant rabbi on the dusty road to Jerusalem. God is bringing the kingdom near in Jesus. The goodness of God in our midst in him is what reveals our righteousness as, well, shabby and superficial. The fullness of God in man, this one man, Jesus, this one life, threads the impossible needle sliding between humanity and God. And it's when Jesus gives up absolutely everything and dies naked and ashamed that he pierces the rough hide of our human condition and opens a narrow way into the kingdom of God pulling us through with him. Jesus makes possible what is otherwise impossible for anyone to be saved. We can't buy our way into heaven with works or money, but Jesus' free gift still costs us, well, everything, more than the sum of our worldly possessions, in fact. As Jesus explained to his disciples already, whoever want to, wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? It seems like the more you have to lose the harder it is to take Jesus up on his offer. As we saw in last week's passage, children who possess nothing teach us how to receive the kingdom. But it's just hard for the rich and righteous to bow before a crucified God. 
It's tempting to read this passage and to do whatever mental gymnastics are necessary to convince yourself that you're not rich. Not compared with, fill in the blank, this person or that person in my circle, not compared with the top 10% or the top 1%. But friends, to think this way is to put ourselves in peril. That's not to diminish the real differences between us. Some in this room have significantly more wealth and access to resources than others. But we are all notoriously able to deceive ourselves when it comes to money. However much we have, we always want a little more. And the more we have, the less we often feel like we have. Though many of us have been taught not to talk about money, not to share how much we make or spend, wealth is a regular topic of discussion for Jesus and must be for those who want to follow him. Instead of making private judgments about our relative standing, we should work at being candid with someone in the body of Christ about what we have, how we got it, and what we're to do with it. Consider Peter. We assume he was probably in a different tax bracket than the rich young ruler to begin with, and he's already left everything. But he doesn't hear this teaching and say, oh great, this one doesn't apply to me. He reminds Jesus, we've done what you commanded. We've left everything. And Jesus makes another strange remark. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life? What does this mean? Jesus is not proclaiming a prosperity gospel. He isn't promising that you will be paid back in kind. Give $5 to the offering and receive a $500 check in the mail. But he is assuring us that his kingdom is one of abundance, not scarcity. Jesus isn't calling his followers to asceticism, poverty, self-denial as an end in themselves, but as a means of investing in a different kind of economy, the economy of the kingdom. Jesus calls his followers to give up everything and go, not because of the horrors of war or dysfunctional government, but because of the promise of one who loves us. Like refugees on the border, Jesus' followers live on the borderlands of a better kingdom and were caught in the conflict between the ages. We are resident aliens in this world. And so we enjoy some benefits of our heavenly citizenship now, like mothers and sisters and brothers that we gain in the church though we may be rejected by our own family. And yet those benefits, well, they come with persecutions as a reminder that we're not yet settled. 
We're not yet home. For Peter and the first disciples, this meant leaving everything and eventually giving up their lives. For the church in Acts, it meant sharing everything in common and selling possessions to meet someone's need. For Gentile Christians, it included setting aside a regular portion of their income to be delivered to Jewish Christians, once enemies whom they had never met. It meant using resources to care for the Christian and pagan poor. And when the ultra-rich began to enter the church after the conversion of the emperor a few centuries later, some felt compelled again to sell everything, retreating even from the city centers themselves to embody dependence on God. And soon thereafter, there were not just individuals, but communities where property was held in common and vows of poverty were embraced. And then with the Reformation, every Christian, not just a select few, was asked to be a good steward, a responsible householder. And in our own day, well, what is the timely call for us? How do we invest in the economy of the kingdom as resident aliens in this world? What traces will be left behind of us as a pilgrim people? There are individuals who practice something called a reverse tithe, where they set a standard of living well below their income and give the rest away. There are renewed calls in this day for orders of common life, a new monastic community, including holding all things in common. Perhaps stewardship now means stepping out of some destructive economic and environmental practices to imagine a different kind of investment. And I know that like the disciples, we tend to assume that the righteous and rich have every advantage both in the world and in the kingdom. Our imagination, our admiration, our expectations drift towards those who are first, who are successful. And so every one of us needs models of Christian discipleship among the poor and disinherited, even as we're trying to figure out what to do with our wealth. What do you think happened to the rich young ruler? He goes away sad. Jesus acknowledges wealth as a stumbling block. And so we assume that's the end of the story. But remember, Jesus told him to go before coming back to follow. Could he have left sad, even sobered? But in the end, obey? Friends, why is that so hard for us to imagine? Nothing is impossible with God. Let's pray together. Crucified Christ. You are our king. 
You were enthroned on the cross, the conqueror of death, and you are seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning and interceding even for us. Lord, help us to treasure you and your kingdom above all else. And in your love, Holy Spirit, whisper to us truth about the ways that we love money and disdain the poor. Help us, Lord, to invest in your kingdom, for you've given everything for us. We rejoice and marvel as we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat>